you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so like I said, um, talking about how Jesus is a great high priest, the great high priest, the ultimate high priest. And in the Old Testament, Aaron, um, who we've talked about, Aaron is Moses' brother. And after the Exodus, Aaron is chosen by God to be high priest of the people of God. And we learn that the priesthood manifests itself through this people called the tribe of Levi. That's why it's called the Levitical priesthood. And in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, and certainly there in Exodus, we see an unpacking of the role of the priesthood of the Old Testament, what they're supposed to do, what they do as mediators and intercessors for God's people and for God. And... Um, The author of Hebrews, as we saw in the reading, wants us to focus on how Jesus is the great high priest over all priests, and really, he's great high priest over this new priesthood. The argument is this, and we're going to unpack this over the course of this morning's sermon, but that Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron because Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek, not like Aaron, right? Like, that's the whole pretty much argument that Um, that the author of Hebrews makes. And they use chapter 5 to introduce this concept, but then they really use chapter 7 of Hebrews to unpack this argument that Jesus is better than Aaron because he's like Melchizedek, not like Aaron. And so we'll reference chapter 7 a lot. But before we get into Melchizedek, I want to talk about Aaron. Because remember, the argument is that Jesus is greater than Aaron. So who is Aaron? Let's start with an understanding of Aaron. Because why bring up Aaron at all. Well, Aaron is the brother of Moses. um, And like I said, when the Israelites leave Egypt, Aaron establishes this old priesthood that the tribe of Levi Levi is commanded to maintain. And, And what do the priests do? What does the priesthood do? Well, Exodus 28 describes that the priesthood stations themselves between God and between man. And they, because of lineage, because of sonship under Aaron, Uh, the first high priest, are able to draw near to God. So the priests, because of their lineage, because of whose son they are, are able to draw near to God and take a mediatory role between God and between man. So priests do things like this. They work in the temple and they mediate between God and his people, particularly through the offering of sacrifices. They do this, they sacrifice innocent animals, they kill them on the altar in order to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. These were blood sacrifices, they were the killing of sacred and innocent animals, and as their blood flowed on the altar, the sins of the people of Israel were forgiven. This is because since the fall in the garden, since that sin entered the world and therefore death entered the world and therefore any sin, even ours today, this is still true and in effect right now, sin requires death. The punishment for any sin, small to big, uh, minute to massive, the punishment is death. And, And that was true back then. The punishment for going against God in rebellion is death. And so the priests mediated by sacrificing to atone for sins. And, and the priests also, um, they taught. They taught God's truth. They managed the household of God, the temple, and they prayed and conveyed God's blessing to the people. So they reminded Israel, they reminded God's people of covenant blessings, what God had promised he would do to them and through them to the world. 
This system is established by God through Moses and Aaron, and it's a good system. This is a, this is a great system, but ultimately the priesthood of men experiences failure over and over again in the Old Testament. Here's one major example. First Samuel chapter 2, a priest named Eli has two sons, and we're told they defile the priesthood. They do this in two ways. One, they take innocent animal sacrifices. They take bulls and cows and things like that, and they cut the best pieces of meat out and save them for themselves, and then they sacrifice the animal. So they steal from God's people, sacrifices that are meant to atone for their sins. Even more so, they go to the tent of meeting, the place where God is dwelling. There are women there, innocent, wonderful women who are tasked with maintaining the temple and the tent of meeting, and they sleep with them. They have sex with them. They commit adultery with them. Well, as a result, God cuts off the priestly line here. Um, These brothers are killed in the same day in battle. Uh, battle against the Philistines. And God says this to Eli, which is a prophecy. He says this, chapter 2, verse 35 of 1 Samuel. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This is partially fulfilled in a priesthood under a priest named Zadok under David, but it's fully fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, who is a faithful priest who does exactly what's in God's heart and in God's mind because he is God. So this is the promise, and this is the priesthood of the Old Testament, full of failure, but it's still a system of necessary mediation between man who is sinful and a holy, righteous, and unsinful God. And so in chapter 7 of Hebrews... The author shows us what this priesthood was like. They were many in number because the priests were constantly dying, right? So there was a constant uh, rolling number of old priests that were passing away through numerous causes, and there were new priests being raised up into the priesthood. So it was this kind of continually perpetuating system of priests. And moreover, the priesthood had to sacrifice for the people of Israel's sins, but the priests also had to sacrifice for their sins because we were told they were sinful. So the priests were doing this dual function. They were trying to mediate between God and man by committing sacrifices to atone for the sins of Israel. But at the same time, they were needing to sacrifice for their own sins. So they were having to work on that. They used animals, which we will talk about more next week, but they were killing animals daily for their sins and the sins of Israel. And right, we've already said sin requires death. Blood must be shed when sin is present to cleanse sin. And so priests were mediating and continued to mediate in this role. And really what priests were doing is this this thing known as intercession. Priests were interceding. They were going in between in a mediatory role between God and man. Right? So for man to access God, so that, that direction, for man to access God, that's what a priest must conduct a sacrifice for. Well, for you to access God who is holy and you're sinful, the sacrifice must cleanse you of sin so you can access God. And priests also, this other way of the street, would communicate God's covenant blessings to the people. So the priest was interceding both from man to God and God to man by sacrificing for sin and communicating covenant blessing. They stood in between. They interceded. It's important to remember at this point, especially as Western Christians, that the priesthood is not a good choice God made until a better choice came along, right? The priesthood is not simply this good idea that works for a little while and then is totally defunct now. 
The priesthood is the way. We need a priest. We need a mediator. We need a sacrifice to atone for our sins. We need somebody to conduct the sacrifice. We need somebody to communicate the covenant blessings of God for us. We need a high priest. That is as true today as it was when Moses and Aaron and Abraham walked the earth. We need a priest. We need a priesthood. We need a mediator. But the priesthood in the Old Testament, and therefore, uh, the priesthood over the Old Covenant was, was rife with failure. The author of Hebrews has been doing this a lot, but they're inviting Jewish Christians who are tempted to walk away from Jesus, they're inviting these Christians to, to consider the ways that Jesus is better than these old systems and structures, not because he's a replacement, but because he's a fulfillment. The author of Hebrews is going to show them and us how these systems and structures don't, aren't canceled out. They are fulfilled, and therefore they pointed to Jesus, the better priest over the better priesthood. The way the author does this, so that's kind of the Aaron, Aaronic priesthood. The way the author of Hebrews does this is to show us first that Jesus is not from the lineage of Aaron. He's not from the priesthood established by God through men. Instead, he's from a whole different priesthood, a whole different order. Let's start in chapter 5, verse 5, which begins this argument. It says this, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. So he didn't self-appoint himself as high priest, but he was appointed by him, the father, who said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And they say this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. Oh, after the order of Melchizedek is where I was going to go with that. I think everyone's okay, right? Okay. Let me pray. Father, we pray for the men or women involved in that accident. I pray for their safety and their heart and their peace. Um, we, we do ministry in the city, and so <laughs> there are um, accidents and people who... Um, are passing by these windows all, all day. And so we pray for all who might pass by, their safety, um, their peace. Uh, yeah, I pray for anxiety and calmness um, and distraction. We pray against these things, Lord, and we love you. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, where was I? Okay, yes, Jesus is like Melchizedek. The end, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so remember, okay, let's, the priesthood established after Exodus was perpetuated by what? Being sons of Aaron by genealogy, by Levitical tribe belonging, by a genealogy. However, Jesus is not in this genealogy. He is not a son of Aaron, but instead he is, we know, the son of God. And so, Jesus came from a whole different tribe. He came from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. So already these Jewish Christians might be wondering, 
um, okay, if Jesus is the great high priest, he, he's from the wrong tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. So already there's this disconnect, right? There's this issue um, between who Jesus is and what he can be as a priest. He doesn't have the right lineage, but the author tells us something new, that Jesus' lineage is not from Aaron. It's from God. Jesus is the son of God himself. And further, his priesthood is not the Aaronic priesthood. It's not from Aaron. It's from this other priest named Melchizedek. Okay, so... Jesus is greater than Aaron because he's like Melchizedek, not like Aaron. Fantastic. Um, you're like Melchizedek. We've got it. But this raises the question for us, who is Melchizedek, right? Who is Melchizedek? Well, here's an illustration um, in the Lord of the Rings. This is going to se- separate the, uh, <laughs> this is going to celebrate the, the movie fans from the true fans. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, there is a famous character who does not appear in the movies, named Tom Bombadil. Let's go, everybody, there's some cheers, all right. If you've read the books, particularly the first book, you remember the strange and long and seemingly pointless narrative about a man named Tom Bombadil. Tom rescues the hobbits, and he uh, shelters them for a while on their quest, and they, um, they eat with him, he gives them food, he sings them songs, he recites poetry. Um, interestingly enough, Frodo, one of the hobbits, is carrying this evil ring that tempts all who are around it and corrupts all who might wear it. But Tom Bombadil is unaffected by the ring. He puts it on, nothing happens. He tosses it around like a juggling ball. Tom Bombadil is totally immune from the power of evil in the ring. And we learn from the book that Tom is not only unaffected by the power of the ring, he's unaffected by all the things in Middle Earth. He just simply doesn't care. We're told that he's eternal. He's always been and always will be. When asked who he is or where he came from, the answer is he just is. He's Tom Bombadil. Tolkien, um, in letters and notes, gives us hints regarding Tom Bombadil's importance, and scholars have certainly speculated, but what we gather is that Tom doesn't play a narrative function in the books. Tom Bombadil has no narrative bearing on the book. That's why Peter Jackson took the creative liberty to say, well, I can't have an hour long (laughs) in the middle of this first movie. I can't have an hour long departure where nothing happens with this guy who nobody knows about, who has no effect on the whole narrative. So he cuts him out of the movies. And I I think that was the right choice for a movie. But for the book, Tom Bombadil, or at least Tolkien says that Tom Bombadil is necessary, not narratively, but symbolically. He says that Tom Bombadil is the embodiment of good, of nature, of purity. And therefore, he is unconcerned with any of the conflict of the world or the evil of the ring. Tom Bombadil just is. And similarly, I think this helps us to start to think about who Melchizedek is, right? Like Melchizedek is, um, he's not a plot figure in the Old Testament. He doesn't help drive forward the narrative of Abraham wherein he appears. He, He appears, we're not given any background to who he is or where he came from or who he was born from. And he leaves, and he leaves without us learning anything more narratively about who he was and what he did. Largely, Melchizedek's purpose is symbolic. He's not useful in driving forward the narrative of the Old Testament in Genesis. Instead, he's doing something else, and we're left to wonder about that unless the author of Hebrews in chapter 7 tells us what that symbolic function is. So to get the answer about Melchizedek, let's read the narrative in Genesis 14. Here's the context. Abram, 
who will become Abraham, but his name is Abram at this point, just won this important victorious battle, and he is journeying back home, and he's about to be renamed Abraham by God and, be, um, and become the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham is about to make a covenant with God, or rather God will make a covenant with him and promise to make Abraham this great nation, a people both to whom and through whom God will reveal himself to the world. Abraham is this incredibly important patriarch. He's a father, and he's seen as the head of the family of God in the Old Testament, another prefigure to Christ himself and the father. So in between this decisive victory in battle and this establishment of a covenant people, this is what happens in Genesis 14, 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him, Abraham, and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's what we have as narrative surrounding Melchizedek. So a couple things of note here. One, in Genesis, Melchizedek appears as one to whom Abram or Abraham gives tithe. Melchizedek blesses Abram, not the other way around. He comes with bread and wine, which should always make us underline our Bible because bread and wine are very familiar to us as Christians. Melchizedek comes with the Lord's Supper thousands of years before Jesus does the same. Melchizedek is a king and a priest. His name means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and yet we're told he's king of Salem, and king of Salem means king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. However, his primary role that we're given is that of the high priest of God, most high, well before the priesthood is formally established under Aaron. Again, we know nothing about Melchizedek or this story, and we hear almost nothing about him after. He has no genealogy, and we are given no details about his priestly function or where he became a priest from other than God appointed him as such. But in Hebrews chapter 7, we get this new information about Melchizedek, primarily that his priesthood was from God, which we could infer but that his priesthood is this heavenly priesthood. It's an order of heavenly priests. And we learn that Jesus, Jesus is the full and final high priest in this heavenly priesthood. Therefore, Jesus is able to be a priest, not because he's from the tribe of Levi or a son of Aaron, but because he is a son of God and from the priestly heavenly order of Melchizedek. And uh, this is... There's some different interpretations of this, but Melchizedek, in my opinion, did exist. He was a real man. He lived and died and was a priest of God who blessed Abram. But literally, or literarily rather, like Tom Bombadil, literarily Melchizedek is a symbol of the eternal heavenly priesthood of God. Here's how the author of Hebrews tells us this in chapter 7, verse 2. They say this, And to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything he gave. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also Salem, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how this great man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. 
So in the narrative sense, right, in Genesis, Melchizedek is eternal. We're not given a genealogy. He just shows up without explanation, and he goes away without a genealogy. He goes away without any narrative. We don't know his father or his children. We don't know his training or credentials other than he was chosen by God. So he is the embodiment of this heavenly priesthood, which is a shadow of the full heavenly priesthood to come, a shadow of the true eternal priest who is to come and who we have in Christ. So Melchizedek is incredibly interesting or confusing for a lot of religious history. Like some traditions just think he was Jesus. Other traditions think he's this end times angel who will return. But I think Hebrews helps us interpret by calling Melchizedek a man. They say he was a man like Abraham. But the author of Hebrews show how symbolically in the Genesis narrative, he was eternal. Literarily, he is eternal. He comes and he has a different lineage and a different priesthood than that that will be established by Aaron. It's almost as if the Bible and the Holy Spirit as its author were trying to connect something for us. So I get this is, this is largely like almost a, a legal case, right? Um, the author of Hebrews is making an argument that Jesus is a better high priest, and it's an effective argument. It's an argument on lineage and um, the priestly orders of the Old Testament and so on. But it's also a pragmatic argument because I believe we're being invited to believe something about Jesus and rest in him as high priest. This argument helps us understand what Jesus is doing right now. It gives us confidence in what he is doing right now as our high priest. First, how did Jesus become a high priest? Well, we know that he became one because he is the son of God. We know he became one because he is in the priestly order of Melchizedek. But this is what chapter 4 verse 14 says. Since then we have our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So Jesus passed through the heavens. When Jesus lives a life of righteousness, he dies a sinner's death, although he is blameless. And he rose again. He establishes himself as qualified to be the great high priest. But when he ascends to the throne of heaven, that's when he becomes and arrives in the vocation of great high priest. So he ascends to the vocation of high priest. Second, what is Jesus doing as high priest? Well, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 26 says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what Jesus is doing as high priest is constantly making intercession for for us. And the manner in which he does this is explained in verse 15 of chapter 5. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is ever living to intercede for you, brothers and sisters, and he does this with grace and mercy because he knows what it's like to be tempted in the ways that you're tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted in the ways that we're tempted, yet he never sins. So he's our perfect high priest because he understands you, yet he doesn't have to offer sin sacrifices for himself. He is perfect so he can devote himself fully to interceding for you and me and not himself. Remember that intercession includes two things, right? One, he intercedes in that he offers the full sacrifice that's finally given for all sin. 
So for those who have faith in Christ, there is a continual accepted sacrifice. It's the death of the priest himself, the death of the spotless priest, Jesus. And two, he simultaneously communicates the covenant blessings of God to his people, namely by sending and pouring out his Holy Spirit on those who believe. In other words, Jesus intercedes by reconciling us to God through the sacrifice of his very body and blood and by blessing us by pouring out his spirit on us. He intercedes. Third, why do we need Jesus as great high priest? Well, we are sinful, right? We've already talked about the fall. We are sinful. God is perfect. Our father, God, our father Adam rebelled against God alongside his wife Eve, and therefore in rebellion, sin merits death always. Sin blocks us from drawing near to God on his holy set-apart throne. Sin blocks us from being reconciled, but the priesthood was established by God as a means with which we can be reconciled to God. So the Old Testament priesthood was exhausting and continual and difficult and a shadow of the priesthood in Christ to come, but it saved. It saved people in so much as the people of God had faith in the system. It saved because it relied on a future full final priest, Jesus, who would reconcile us back to God. We need this type of priest, is my argument. Holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, who now sits exalted in the heavens, who once and for all time offered himself as the sacrifice. A son has been made priest in the lineage of the king of righteousness and the king of peace, Melchizedek, the son of God himself, is now the priest. This is Jesus. It's too brilliantly complicated, and yet it's plain here in Scripture. We need a high priest. We have one, Jesus. He is constantly interceding, constantly praying for you, constantly bestowing his covenant blessing through his spirit, constantly pouring out more of himself for his sons and daughters, constantly singing in our midst, Hebrews tells us. There's only two places in scripture where Jesus sings. At the Last Supper, we're told he sings a hymn, and Hebrews tells us he sings when we gather. That's an apologetic for attendance. I actually think that. Because Jesus sings. Jesus is singing. What is he doing? He's singing in the midst of us. And get this. Here's another apologetic. Okay, because we are sons and daughters of a great high priest and king, and because the priesthood is perpetuated through lineage, what does that make us? Priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What do we do as priests? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The priesthood is continued through lineage. But no longer are the priests Aaron's offspring, but the sons and daughters of the great high priest Jesus. That means you are a priest. Did you know that? You're a priest. We don't need someone on earth here to do sacrifices and mediate between us and God. Faith in Jesus as the high priest saves you. You have direct access to God in Christ. What is the sacrifice you offer as a priest? His body and blood. But you appeal to his sacrifice, not one we could conjure with human hands. And, and we don't need somebody to intercede for us with God's word. God's word has been given to all of us, namely in the Bible, but also 
namely in the Holy Spirit of God, which lives in you. We don't need a mediator. We have one in Christ. We are priests under our great high priest, Father. This is the wonderful truth of Jesus being greater than Aaron and greater than Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews wants to implore us, do not depart from this priest. Do not depart from this priesthood. And so, as we wrap up, just like Melchizedek, the great high priest of old, who foreshadowed the heavenly priesthood of Jesus, we come forward with bread and wine. As a priest, we offer the death of Jesus again. We remember the full, eternal sacrifice. This is what we do as we come to the table. As priests, we are, we are reminded of God's covenant blessing, reconciliation, forgiveness, peace, sanctification, and righteousness. We're reminded what it is finished. What is finished? The sacrifice that atones for sin. The death of Jesus. It is finished. So we come and feast on the body and blood of our great high priest. We know that what he is doing is not in vain. It is finished and everlasting work. It requires no other mediator, no other sacrifice. Sin has been once and for all atoned for, for those who just believe he is their priest, who lived, died, rose, ascended, and now mediates for us. It is finished and everlasting work because he, the priest, gave himself as a sacrifice for us, which we'll talk more about next week. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your covenant blessing, the fact that you have made us into a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Would that be written on our hearts more fully and deeply this morning because we we come to your throne as the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and the high priest who has fully and finally offered the sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, it's too magnificent for me to comprehend, and yet here I sit with a deeper understanding and still probably a drop in the ocean of understanding of the complexity of the truth that your priesthood is magnificently fulfilled in Jesus. I don't need a mediator beyond him that we as sons and daughters of the great high priest can go directly to Jesus, our Savior, right now in prayer and ask him for things and worship him in gratitude and bless his name and be reminded of his blessing. Lord, I pray if there are any in the room who for the first time are thinking, I want to be under this priest, I pray that they would um, surrender and bow to the fact that there is a sacrifice that was sufficient and eternal and it was you and it applies to them and therefore they too are saved to the uttermost with confidence we draw near to the throne, not with anxiety, not with reluctance, not with, with a desire to know whether this is true or not, or a desire to wonder if, if our sins have been forgiven. With confidence we draw near to the throne of grace and mercy. He was tempted like we were tempted, yet he did not sin, and yet he died anyway. With confidence we draw forth. With confidence, we sit at the throne of the God of the universe and say, would you save me? And with confidence, we know that the answer is yes, I have, I did. It is finished. 
Not I'm working on it. Not do a little bit more. Not say this prayer again and maybe this time it'll be true. It is finished for those who draw near the throne of grace today. And maybe we've been a believer for a long time and we just need to be reminded that, no, I can confidently go forth and forward to Christ regardless of what happened even last night because he knows and he still says you are mine. Lord, we love you. We need you. We need a high priest. You have given yourself as one. We are eternally grateful and we can't wait for the day where we will worship with you and dine with you in our midst. We pray all of this in your powerful name. Jesus, our high priest, amen.